cross and worship and we end at the cross and worship and so we start with wonder and awe this morning and we continue our series we're in week two and we are talking through these different motifs of the cross and today we're going to be looking at the motif of substitution and I'll explain a lot more about what's going on here in just a moment if you're familiar with uh, Maximilian Kolbe he was a Polish Franciscan a monk and a priest who was arrested by the Nazis and then sent to Auschwitz. Following an attempt to escape by several of the inmates, the Nazis decided that they wanted to make an example of the people in the camp as in order to deter anybody from trying to escape. And so at random, they selected 10 men who would suffer and die and actually be starved to death. One of the men who was selected cried out in protest, my wife and my children. Maximilian Kolbe was not married, had no children, and so stood up and said, I will go in the place of this man. And so he accompanied the other nine into the solitary confinement, into the place where the Germans would make their example. Now it's interesting, especially as we talk about the cross, it's so important for us to remember that the only thing that empires can do is threaten us with death and with torture. That is their last weapon. But there is a way that exhausts that weapon, as we will see consistently in the cross of Jesus. Maximilian Kolbe offered his life as a substitution for this man. He led the inmates in prayer as they suffered through their last days. And those kinds of stories stir something deep within us, something noble, something brave. And today we want to look at the substitution story that the Gospels themselves are telling. And in doing so, I want to unpack one very simple phrase, which, as John Sabrino says, is the fundamental affirmation of the New Testament. Simply this, Christ died for us. You could do worse in your theology if that's all you walk out of here with today that Christ Jesus died for us. That is powerful. That is world-shaping. And I want to look at this because I've had different experiences with the way that we sort of emphasize this simple phrasing. Now, if you're from a religious tradition that often has to convey how terrible you are, how loathsome you are in the sight of God because of your sin, then you may be tempted to overemphasize the us in this phrasing. You may be overly fixated in in how you perceive that God sees you because all that you've been told is that you're terrible. You're a miserable wretch. In the words of dear Jonathan Edwards, who's buried not too far from here, you're like a spider dangling over the fire. I don't know why that's one of the few pieces of Christian literature that we read in school, but I remember that one very vividly, so it had some effect. And so we tend, like if you're from a tradition like that, you may tend to put the emphasis in this simple phrase on the us. Or maybe you're like me. I had the experience where I, for a long time, I grew up in the Bible Belt. That was, so, so the Christian story, in some ways, was kind of in the ether. 
And this is what culture does. It shapes us without us really recognizing until somebody shows us. And for me, I encountered a lot of Christians. I was not a Christian at this point in my life. And the thing that I kind of gathered about the Christian story was that it was sort of transactional. And so for me, the emphasis on the four, and and in that transaction, it just seemed to me like Jesus was this kind of get out of hell free card. And in my very simplistic phrasing of, you know, this equation, I was like, well, I'm like 16 years old. If Jesus gets, out of, uh, gets, gets us out of hell when we die, then I'm not going to die tomorrow. I mean, odds are. So I'm just going to keep doing what I want. And then when I get older, then I'll figure out what that means. And I'll get right with God, say my prayer and, you know, be good for the good place too. And so my emphasis was very much on the four of this simple phrasing. Now, Thanks be to God, I encountered people in my life who were not just living this out as a transaction, but were living this out as an immersion into a story that shaped every part of their lives. And that for me was a very, very different telling of the story and was quite compelling. And so I began to see it in a different light. But today I want to, in this simple phrase, help us see that the emphasis that the New Testament places on this is on the first word, on Christ on who he is and what he has done. And today I hope as we look at this theme of substitution to just both convey to you how utterly and thoroughly it is conveyed in the New Testament, but also to help us consider uh, a couple questions. First of all, I want you to see just how, just as this is just Paul conveying how much uh, Jesus died for us is, is put into the New Testament. So we have just several verses there. Again, a consistent theme. And I want to help us kind of ask the question, what does it mean that Christ died for us? Those of us who have been around this phrase for so long can become sort of immune to its implications. Why did he die at all? Why why was that part of it? And I think the secondary question for that is, why did he die in the manner that he did? A couple of notes about this series that are important as we continue to wade our way through it. First of all, the work of Jesus on the cross always describes the harmonious work of Father, Spirit, and Son. It's always a concert of the triune God. If you're new to church, Christians have this great mystery that we try to convey with words that God is one and yet three. And so when we talk about the cross, especially when we talk about substitution, it is so important that we understand this. That the substitution of Jesus is not God inflicting his wrath or some sort of pain upon Jesus in order to satisfy some cosmic justice. That's not what's happening here. And it's important that we recognize that Father, Spirit, and Son in the event of the cross are working in harmony. Second, the work of Jesus on the cross is in harmony with the way that he lived his life. It's in harmony with his resurrection. All of these are moving in a singular direction. The resurrection is not just a reversal of the crucifixion. The crucifixion is not just that Jesus was a nice teacher. He lived a great life. And that at the end of his life, all of a sudden, he realized that he was going to have to be crucified. No, the movement of Jesus' life is self-giving love. The movement of his life and his incarnation as he comes to us, emptying himself of his status as God and taking the form of a peasant in the ancient Near East in the first century under the thumb of the Roman Empire, in his death as he gives of his life, and in his resurrection as God gives continually again the gift that is Jesus. The work on the cross is not God's plan B. 
It's not that God tried a bunch of stuff throughout history and then said, okay, we've tried, we've thrown all these cosmic dartboards trying to bring salvation. Jesus, get in there. Jesus was always the point. And God doesn't rip up the script. He doesn't do this with his grand narrative of salvation. He doesn't do this in your life either. And this is so important. God does not throw away the things that he has made. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story that begins in the garden, the fulfillment of the story that's offered as promise to Abraham that we see in the Passover in Moses. Jesus, the continuation and the fulfillment of that story. God does not throw away things that he has made, the things that he has called good. He doesn't do that with the story of salvation. He doesn't do that with you. God redeems, he renews, he restores, he is making all things new. The work of Jesus on the cross does not fit into one theory or theme. People say, well, are you preaching the gospel? And it's usually like, well, what do you mean by that? Because the cross has so many implications, has so many consequences, has so many beautiful witnesses to the love of God and the way that he restores all things. When we try to narrow it down to one simplistic little theory, we lose much of the power of what Jesus has done in dying for us. So we're continuing this series on the cross, kind of with those things in as the subtext. And throughout this series, we're looking at what we're called differing motifs. And again, I like the word motifs better than theory, because motifs kind of says there's these different things that come together to make this wider mosaic. A theory sort of says like, this is the one way. And so that's the vocabulary that we have adopted for this series. Now, it's one of the most common images offered to convey what Jesus did on the cross. Maybe you've heard something like this. Maybe you've said something like this. Imagine we're told there's a courtroom scene where you are the defendant. You are in the docket. And as the judge reads the charges, you realize in this scene that you are in fact wholly guilty of what you are accused of. That you have done the things alleged of you and now you await the punishment that will be read subsequently. The judge then pronounces that these crimes that you have committed carry the sentence of As the weight of this falls upon you, as you hear in that breath that you are going to die, you hear the judge say that his son will serve the sentence for you. Something like that. Now this, at its most simplistic sense, is partially right. But as with things that are simplistic, it's kind of right, but it's not less than that, but it's it's also more. And Today, I want to look at the substitution story that the Bible is telling in a way of seeing more fully the beauty of Jesus Galatians 1 verse 4 says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. What does it mean that Christ died for us? Why did he have to die at all? And why did he die in the way that he did? Well, to begin to trace these threads, we go back to the beginning, as we often do here. Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to till and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may eat freely of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now notice what's going on here, because this is important. Which trees are the people able to eat from? All of them, except one. So even from the very beginning, the, the, the blessings, the promises, the goodness of God is available at such a scale that far outweighs the one thing that God has said, but this is not good for you. All the trees for beauty, for food, for enjoyment over here. One tree, not good for you. And you can ask the question, 
why would God put a tree that he does not want us to eat from in his garden? Does God not get to choose what kinds of trees go into his garden? Like if I were to put my children in a room, you know, with like a hairdryer and some water and say, hey, just don't drop that in the water and plug it in. Like I, that would be irresponsible parenting, right? Is God in some small way being this kind of irresponsible father? It's a, it's a reasonable question, right? But something within the sweep of the scripture, something that is conveyed to us consistently is that God so values our ability to choose him that he will put within the creation itself the means to choose against him. And that is mysterious. It is challenging. But there's something about love that demands that we respond to God with our will and our volition, with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, as Jesus will say. That this is inherent in the response of God. And so, yes, God in his cosmic design and wisdom puts a tree that he commands us not to eat from in the middle of the garden. Now, if you know the story, you know that the people that God commands not to eat from the tree, this one tree, while well, he's given them all these other trees, you know that they do in fact eat from that tree. Now, I also want to, to, to like really paint this well. Because I think sometimes, you know, like there's, there's this great book that our kids read and it's called Don't Push the Button. And the whole premise is don't push the button. And the, the, the main character is like this little monster thing. It's like, I really want to push the button. I really want to push the button. And how many of you have had this experience where somebody tells you not to do something? What is the first thing that you want to do? You want to do that thing, right? right? There's an art to parenting where you're like, I really don't want you to do that, but I can't let you know how much I don't want you to do that. And so I'm going to very subtly and try to artfully say that. This is not what's going on here. Okay, God is not being cute and be like, hey, there's a tree, like I give you all these other trees, but there's one tree, don't do that one. It's not what God is doing. He's not teasing the people. He's not, he's not playing with them. There's something deeply significant about this tree. If you remember in Genesis 1, it says that the people are made in the image of God. This carries with it a profound, profound responsibility. And so you could ask the question, like, so in Genesis 3, the people eat from the tree that God has told them not to eat from. And then in Christian theology, we have this kind of this fallout, what's called the fall. And subsequently, every generation, all people are subjected to this power of sin. And you could ask yourself the question, is this not a disproportionate response on the part of God? I mean, the, the man and the woman in the beginning make one mistake, and God, this God of grace, now punishes people forevermore? I mean, the, this question sort of rattles around in my brain. I don't know if it does in yours. So how can God do this? How can he continue to pronounce these consequences? Well, there's a couple things going on. First of all, these are not consequences that God is sort of giving out. Now, I will admit, again, to, to, to bring us back to parenting, there are times where I warn my kids not to do something, and they do it, and I'm sort of happy to see them suffer, like, like slightly suffer the consequences of the decision they've made. Now, within reason, within realm, this is not what God is doing, okay? There are consequences. Because we are made in the image of God, we have a heavy, heavy responsibility. Fundamentally, all sin is idolatry. Either we put ourselves in the position of God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is basically the impulse and the desire to be the judge, to have control, to be in power. That's the first sin. It's relatively idolatry. 
or we worship something that's not God. And fundamentally, because of the way we are designed, because of the authority with which we are made, when we do that, we give our authority to things that are not God, and thus we suffer the consequences. Sin, then, is not just us, like, breaking some arbitrary rules. It's us missing the fullness for which God has for us. And this we talked about last week. Sin is both a responsible guilt. It is the things that we get askew. We miss the mark in the words of the, the, words of the biblical uh, narrative. But also it, it also causes something in God. A phrase that we're not really comfortable with that I want to unpack a little bit today. The wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God, this is very important is not a way of describing these two competing impulses within a conflicted, borderline, schizophrenic God. The wrath of God is quite simply the love of God resisted. Okay, important nuances here. If you are from a religious tradition that way overemphasizes the wrath of God, the wrath of God is not somehow God trying to beat you into submission. Again, if your, if your impulse is to put the emphasis on the us in that phrase, Christ died for us, this is not God trying to show you and beat you into some sort of cosmic submission. But in our culture, and I feel this, this is not just like, I, I think sometimes when we talk about our culture, when I use that phrase, it seems like I'm distancing myself from that. I am very much in line with this. The phrase, the wrath of God, I want nothing to do with that. I've spent years theologizing how to like, how does Jesus kind of undo that? And you know what I've come to? The wrath of God is the love of God resisted. And I want to show you what I'm talking about. We've all suffered, right? Or we know dear loved ones who have suffered. We've read about pain and suffering in the world and that have caused us with everything within us to protest, to see what's going on. Either it's something that's happening to us or something that's happening in our world. And we say, this is not right. This is not the way that it should be. I was reading a story in the New York Times this week. Some 85,000 migrant children have been lost by the Biden administration. have been turned over either to predatory guardians or they don't know where they are. And a lot of times these ones that they could track, these, these dear children from places like Guatemala and El Salvador, have been placed with predatory guardians who basically treat these kids as young as 12 and 13 as indentured servants. Charging them exorbitant prices for their passage to the United States, charging them rent. Many of these kids who go to school all day end up working in factories all night. One particular group of children they were following was working at a factory in Michigan, packing things like Cheerios and cutting up using sharp knives, chicken breasts to make chicken nuggets. And you know what my kids eat every day? Cheerios and chicken nuggets. And I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, this is not right. There's something fundamentally wrong here. We start to get a glimpse of what God's wrath might look like. Now, here's, here's honestly, here's what I did, because we live in such a world. I read this story that I came to because of Twitter. And you know what I did after that? I, I sat, and I sat in it for a second, and then I clicked on the next thing. Because that's what we do. We move on. But what if those were your kids? You wouldn't move on. Guess whose kids they are? Jesus reserves his harshest judgments for those who would tie heavy burdens around the necks of these dear little ones. In fact, he says, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. This is the wrath of God, friends. 
The wrath of God is not God deciding one day that he woke up and is mad at you. God is not impulsive and raging. God rages against injustice in our world. He rages against the injustice in us when we take the beauty of what he's given us and we, we mar it with our own flesh and brokenness. Every single person is made in the image of God. They're all God's children, his precious ones. And so wrath is his righteous response to his love resisting. But the wrath of God, Romans 1 says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and injustice of those who by their injustice suppress the truth. Paul in Ephesians 2 will outline two very important things. And friends, I know we're starting, we're, we're in this very heavy place right now. But when the Bible brings us into these heavy places, it is not trying to leave us there. And this is always so important. This is what we talked about last week. At the same moment where our sins are revealed to us and the depth of them is revealed to us, at that same moment, in that same breath, is an invitation from God to come home to repent and to turn away. So God doesn't just show us our sins and say, good luck to you. God shows us the depths of our individual and our collective sins as an invitation to say, but there's another way. And we'll see this in Ephesians chapter two. You were dead, Paul writes, through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, basically mean you are following the wiles of Satan, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. Look at what he says in verse three. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, doing the will of flesh and senses. And we were by nature, look at this, children of wrath like everyone else. Now, this is not God saying that I created you. Your nature is to be a child of wrath. What this is saying is that our nature in the hands of our sinful, broken flesh puts us under the wrath of God. And so Paul very starkly outlines our position, but as is always so beautiful in the scriptures, verse four, as Paul so starkly outlines our predicament. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. And all of these begin to shed light on the next question. Why did Jesus die the way that he did? Have you ever thought about, I've I just had this thought this week. Like, why didn't Jesus just die a nice old death in his sleep and pronounce us forgiven? Like, come back after that? Like, oh yeah, by the way, I died for the sins of the world. It just was very peaceful for me. Crucifixion in the first century was not just a brutal, torturous method of execution. It was a way to utterly shame people. James Cohn says, the paradox of a crucified savior lies at the heart of the Christian story. That paradox was particularly evident in the first century when crucifixion was recognized as the particular form of execution reserved by the Roman Empire for insurrectionists and rebels. It was a public spectacle accompanied by torture and shame, one of the most humiliating and painful deaths ever devised by human beings. And so the, the crucifixion itself is a tool of the empire. Oftentimes the Roman empire would leave those who were crucified displayed on the road into a town with a very, very overt message. This is what happens if you mess with Rome. We are all powerful. We hold death in our hands and we will use it if you mess with 
realm. So this is a tool of the empire. But worse yet, Deuteronomy 16 verse 23 in the Jewish story, not only was the crucifixion a tool of shame and a tool of oppression, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. The way that a person lived their life gave insight to the quality of that life. And the way that a person died gave you insight into the quality of that life. And so Jesus dying on a cross in the mindset of the early uh, Jewish people suggested that Jesus was cursed by God. The cross of Jesus is bearing witness to the utter and abject shame of sin. The way that sin has woven its way into every fabric of human life. It's the political, it's the religious, it's the spiritual, it's the relational forces that all converge on Jesus of Nazareth that day on Calvary. And we'll get to so many of those themes as we walk through this series. And at the same time, it's revealing the wrath of God against sin. God's indignation against sin. Now it's important that anytime we talk about God's wrath being poured out upon Jesus, that we not separate the Trinity This is not some sort of cosmic divine child abuse that's happening here. This is a harmony of Father, Spirit, and Son who have undertaken to redeem the world. Fleming Rutledge says of what Jesus is doing, God is not committing violence. God in the person of the incarnate Son is himself a willing and purposeful victim of the violence that entered the creation as a result of the fall of Adam. This is important. The violence that we see in the crucifixion is the work of the enemy. And yet Jesus subjects himself to this violence. The emphasis of the phrase, Christ died for us, friends, is not on us. It's not on our inability to save ourselves, not on our condition, not on what we deserve. The emphasis is on who Christ is and who Christ is and his action on the cross illuminates everything else. Jesus in Mark 10 verse 45 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. This phrase that he applies to himself, the son of man, is a glorious messianic figure from the book of Daniel. When people heard somebody say that, they had an image of a conquering king coming on the clouds. And Jesus juxtaposes these images. He says, this glorious messianic king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. The prophet Isaiah, which would be taken up by many of the New Testament writers, would write, surely he has borne our infirmities. He's carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Throughout the narrative of the Gospels, Jesus finds confrontation with people at every level of society. From the cross sections of the dominant cultures, Roman Empire and Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, he also confronts these mysterious dark forces that are oppressing people. The first thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark is cast out a demon. Jesus throughout his life is heightening this confrontation between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Jesus in John's gospel is portrayed as the word made flesh. He is re-narrating the story of Israel. He resists the temptations in the wilderness, whereas the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, succumb to the temptations of of the serpent. Jesus resists the temptations in the wilderness. These are previews of the motifs that are upcoming in this series, but they're such important threads for the motif that we are tracing today. The Gospels are making the point to us that in the life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is our substitute. 
He is the representative human, the new Adam in the words of Paul. He is both revealing that all people are held in the clutches of sin, and he is the outpouring of God's wrath that confronts us in the fullness of the love of God. John 3.16 says this so beautifully. For God so loved the world, and the world in John's gospel is the place that is aligned against God. The world in John's gospel is the place that is arrayed against God's goodness and his purposes. For God so loved that place and those people that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Indeed, they go on, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus, in the midst of these confrontations, is consistently portrayed as being wholly innocent. In John's Gospel, Pilate will repeatedly say of Jesus, I find no basis for charges against him. Pilate is arraigning Jesus. He's listening to the charges that the people are bringing. He says, I find no basis. N.T. Wright says, Jesus was thus taking on himself the direct consequences in the political and the theological realm alike of the failure and the sin of Israel. He was dying quite literally for their sins. Jesus was taking upon himself the direct result of the ways in which God's people had failed in their vocation. This is most starkly seen in the release of a man named Barabbas. Barabbas was a rebel. Barabbas was a criminal. He had murdered. He had plotted insurrection against the Roman Empire. He had been arrested and was held in the custody of the Roman Empire. And Pilate has an idea because he keeps, he keeps questioning Jesus and he's like, something's going on here. I don't want to be part of this. And so he's trying to get out of the sentence that the people are demanding. And so he says, oh, we have this custom at the Passover. We release one of the prisoners and we'll turn them over to you. And he says, we've got Jesus, who's never done anything wrong, who's been nothing but kind to everybody. And then we've got Barabbas over here, who's murdered and plotted insurrection. Which one do you want? And they say, Barabbas. The drama that the gospel writers are trying to invite us to enter is to see in Barabbas powerfully the truth that we are Barabbas. You see, the gospel writers, friends, are geniuses. They're not giving us a list of theological propositions about Jesus. They're conveying their theology in the web of story and of drama. And the drama they are inviting us into as we approach the cross is to see ourselves in the mirror when we see the name of Barabbas, to hear our voices in the crowd taunting Jesus, to see ourselves as the soldiers mocking Jesus and violently abusing him. We're Peter pulling out our sword when those come to arrest Jesus because we'd rather fight than give in. We're Peter denying Jesus because we said we would never leave him, but we are not that strong in our own word. We are Judas kissing the cheek of the Savior in the garden. All of this powerfully spirals to declare one clear and incontrovertible truth that Jesus is innocent and we are not. Fleming Rutledge says that we are both involved and implicated in Christ's death. But by his mercy, we are not what we were, we are not what we are by our own inclinations. As the gospels are clearly and convincingly making the case that Jesus is innocent, that he is the one who should not be punished, that we are the ones who deserve the punishment on the cross, 
They don't place their focus here. The Gospels don't place their focus on the suffering of Jesus. They don't place their focus on the injustice even. What they do is they direct all of our focus towards this one who is hanging on the cross. All of our focus is towards this one. You can picture this like tumultuous scene. People are yelling. People are screaming. Pilate's trying to get out of it. There's all these things that are swirling around, yet the Gospels consistently are trying to draw our eyes to one place in the center where our perspective lies, Jesus on the cross. Put him right in the middle of these two thieves and they say, this, put your attention here because when you look here, what you see is not just the depth of your sin, but the endless bright abyss of God's unfailing love for us. Paul will say it this way, reflecting on that verse that says that those who are hung on a tree become a curse. In Galatians chapter three, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, quoting Deuteronomy, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. I love what Karl Barth says. He says, that is not the final thing. Neither man's rebellion nor God's wrath. But the deepest mystery of God is this, that God himself in the man Jesus does not avoid taking the place of sinful man and being that which man is, a rebel and bearing the suffering of such a one to be himself the entire guilt and the entire reconciliation. Friends, Jesus is not an unwitting victim. And his arraignment with Pilate in John's gospel demonstrates Jesus is not really playing the part of the defendant. If you read John's gospel, Jesus sort of turns the tables on Pilate and he becomes the judge. Jesus willingly goes to the cross, unveiling the love of the Father. As Bart says, the judge who would have every right to pronounce the sentence over us is judged in our place. But this is, this is where it gets so good. This substitution is not just negative. It's not just God balancing some cosmic accounts. This substitution, God taking our place, is also positive so that we can have his place. God takes all that we have brought astray, that we have distorted, takes that upon himself, but he also offers us all the fullness of his kingdom, of his love. In the words of Ephesians chapter one, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He seated us at the right hand of the father. It's not just that God took your place so you don't have to be so guilty or so ashamed. God took your place so that you could step into the fullness of what it means to be a daughter and a son of the king who made the world. God is both revealing the depths of our brokenness, but at the same time, he's undoing that by the power of his suffering love and inviting us into life with him, a life that begins not in eternity, not someday far off, but right now. You are his children. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward. And friends, as we talk about this idea of substitution, of God putting himself in our place so that we can be put in God's place, I hope that you at once see two things going on here. First of all, yes, we sin, we fall short, but God in his great love for us, in his mercy has said, I know you do. And I've made a way for you to come back home. I know you sin, but I've paid it all. I am your substitute. 
And I also hope, friends, that you can see that this is not just about God somehow making it right within himself to love us, but it's that God calling us to himself anew, that Jesus saying in John's gospel that the life that I share with my Father, I now open up to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, that right now, the life that God has for you begins anew because God took our place so that we can have his place. And again, we arrive where we started. At worship, at awe, we come to the end of words. And so friends, I want to, as we come to the table, I'm gonna invite our communion service to come forth. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to meet with you and to say the things that I can't say, to confirm here in this place that you are restored, you are redeemed, you are whole because God took your place and that you are invited right now into a life that he has for you where you see his presence and all the beauty and all the implication of that. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood poured out for your sins. As often as we eat, as often as we drink, we declare that God took our place so that we can have his. In just a moment, we're going to invite you to come partake of the table, to dip and to receive that. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit would just confirm these things in your heart, would convict you, but also would draw you into the life that he has for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray, come Holy Spirit. God, would we see the wonder and awe of God in our place, Lord? God, I want to pray for those specifically today who are heavy laden, Lord, either with shame from sins that they acknowledge, God, or have just been trying, going off in their own way and hardness of heart, Lord, and trying to forge their own path. God, would your spirit both have the words of conviction, but also of comfort, Lord, that God, where sin abides, grace abides all the more. God, that we are no longer slaves to the power of sin and death because you have broken them on the cross by the power of your self-giving love. In the words of Colossians 2, you have nailed them to a cross, disarming them. And so God, would you silence the voice of the accuser in this place, God? Would you silence the voice in us that tells us that we can rely upon our own flesh, that we don't need the substitution of God taking our place? God, instead, would we just make the beautiful exchange? God, of our nothingness for your everything. God, for our rags, for your riches, Lord. God, and I pray at one and the same time that as we do this, Lord, we'd see that this is a life that begins right now. That we get to, get to live the life of heaven here on earth. You're bringing the kingdom of heaven near drawing near to us in our hearts, Lord Jesus, bringing your peace, God, bringing the power of your presence, Lord. 
God, would you have your way in this room over these moments as we take from the table, Lord, as we receive, God, as we respond in worship. We ask and we pray all these things in your beautiful name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.